Welcome to The Antidote, an interview series with women and gender-marginalised writers recorded in a place of personal significance to them. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and we have arrived at the final episode in this collection. Okay, so I figured the best way to finish a show is with all the important stuff, clarity, advice, honesty, sincerity, and preferably in a park. And in November of last year, I met up with our final guest, and she just happened to deliver on literally all of these fronts. Arti Golapudi is a Brooklyn-based comedian, performer, and comedic poet who received her Bachelor of Music from Berklee College of Music and her Master's of Arts in Performance Studies from NYU Tisch. Arti uses comedy as a tool to open dialogue about personal identity, trauma, and farts, and she has been profiled and featured for exactly these talents on Vice, Brown Girl Mag, Huffington Post, Wussy Magazine, and as a Forbes Under 30 feature. Artie curated and hosted Yourself, Your Body at Union Hall, and she writes and performs a one-woman show about grief and trauma called Boogie on the Brink at The Slipper Room. She's also self-published her latest batch of poetry titled Boys I've Kissed and Hated, and it's in a mobile phone-sized book so that you can carry it alongside your phone in your bag, which I just think is so smart. And yes, I did just use the word mobile phone instead of cell phone. But you know what's cooler than the words mobile phone and cell phone? Literally any Thing, but also mainly the fact that you can read Artie's comedic poetry on her Instagram at ArtieFartyPoems, but you can also check them out on her main Instagram feed, which is at ArtieParty. We have a conversation about what makes Artie's poetry comedic, how she discovers the things that she writes about, what she finds funny, and how she ends up co-working or co-creating with the people that she makes really cool stuff with. But first... We have to meet Artie. So Artie and I meet each other by standing in front of a lock chain wire mesh fence in Soho, deep on Manhattan Island in NYC, where the traffic is thick and the buildings are tall. And when this locked gate is opened by a volunteer who strides up from the sidewalk, Artie leads me into a Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of plants and statues and wind chimes and birds. So we're at Elizabeth Street Garden. What I love about this space is that it does different like seasonal things. So right now I love that there's like little pumpkins and these Grecian statues, right? And there's like a dog statue over there. But I really love how it changes with the seasons. And at the same time, I love this garden because the past four years I've worked in different spaces around this garden and so this has always been sort of this like very nice peaceful sanctuary regardless of what the temperature is doing outside so it just feels like we're not really in New York even though you can like hear those New York sounds in between those New York sounds there's like birds and chimes so it's kind of like this transportative space. This garden is in the middle of Soho Mm -hmm. How do you think about Soho in relation to this garden? Like, what is this garden sitting in? Yes, the city, Mm -hmm. but what's kind of surrounding it for you? What's surrounding it is a lot of people who are super affluent. I don't even know if these people 
permanently full-time live in these apartments, right? They might just be people who own spaces, real estate, property, etc. It's also positioned in a place where a lot of the stores and stuff are not accessible, but in the middle of this inaccessibility lays this garden that is reliant on accessibility to people of all walks of life. It's a free space, it's volunteer run, Nobody gave us any weird looks for setting up a whole podcast thing here, right? So it's seen as a community space in the middle of this space that uh, is actually holding up barriers for people around them. Breaking apart barriers is a theme that is embedded in this conversation with Arty, reaching into the outside space created by barriers and connecting with those who are there as a community, as a readership, as an audience and as co-creators, thrives not just in Arty's actions, but in her words and her comedy and her performances and her insights. She makes this place amazing and brings joy and belonging there. She's a volunteer in the Garden of Margins, and her keys are a candid and deep self-knowledge and her inimitable laugh. I said I wanted to end this show in a park, but really I wanted to end this show with Artie because I walked away from my conversation with her with a full understanding that there was nothing that I needed in the straight, white, cis, abled world of comedy. Nothing I needed to aim for materially or desire in there when I could live in a fever dream with comedy writers and makers whose words, shows and spaces shattered exclusionary barriers with truth and with laughter. You do comedy in New York now. Mm -hmm. Why did you move to New York originally? So I grew up in Jersey, New Jersey, and you know, I had always been coming to the city as a kid. It was always this like space I dreamt of which is super corny I feel like everyone always feels like that but then when I was I guess around 13 or 14 I had an older cousin who's he was in med school here and we were at a family wedding and I was really into the yeah yeah yeahs and I saw on the internet (laughs) that they were playing in Brooklyn and I was like trying to convince him to take me and so he took me to see yeah yeah yeahs open up for Sonic Youth and that was like my first like real concert and then he started just taking me to shows all the time so when I went to school in Boston I always knew that I was gonna like end up here Um, and for a while I was like maybe I'll go to school here but I wasn't ready to go to college in New York so I just knew that no matter what I ended up doing I would just weirdly end up here at least for a portion of my life. So when you talk about the fact that you were drawn to New York what was it at that age that made you think that this was somewhere that you wanted to be? I think I'm a person who very much like glamorized a like I was very into early thousands indie rock which I feel like is very New York right like I was into like the strokes you know I was into Sonic Youth and the yeah yeah yeahs and all these bands that talked about becoming an artist in New York uh, and before I ever got into comedy, I went to school for music. So I thought I was gonna like work at a record label and be like a cool chick in lower Manhattan, like working at a record label and like being super punk rock. And I think I just was really listening to that music and glamorizing that lifestyle and going into record stores and like seeing posters for shows that were happening in New York and stuff like that. I definitely had a romanticized like vignette of what I thought life was gonna be like in New York. 
So that's what was drawing me into it, that I wanted to be a part of a story like that. And you've previously spoken about... (laughs) (laughs) That is a garbage truck, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. It's like a really quiet street, but this huge garbage truck needs to make an entrance. It's like me at a party. (laughs) It's like me at a dinner party. (laughs) Um, You've previously spoken about how when you came here, you entered into a pretty abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and getting into improv Mm -hmm. was in some way part of having relief from your every day. Mm-hmm. At what point did doing improv turn into writing comedy for you? Yeah, so even when I was like doing improv, I like took a class because I just was like, how can I do something different? And then I never, should we wait for this car to like keep going? Yeah. <laughs> I think the they're pretty short. just dumping some stuff. Uh, what was like happening, <laughs> this is so funny, this is like a very New York moment. We're like in a very quiet garden. Because they're doing construction on the building across. I, that used to be a restaurant across the street that I worked at. No way. Yeah. What was the restaurant called? <laughs> it was called Public. <laughs> what a weird time. I used to do, I, I was a hostess and did coat check and I only worked brunch shift. Yeah, it was when I was on unemployment and also like a full-time nanny. So I was working seven days a week and making like the most money of my life. And then I moved to a different restaurant around here called Fat Radish. And then I went to grad school, so I like quit my restaurant job. I'm really bad at working at a restaurant. So I'm honestly surprised nobody fired me. Like really, really, really bad. Uh, I just am too distracted to care about people's food. But uh, I feel you. Yeah. I never thought I was going to be a comedian. I just signed up for an improv class because, like, I knew a girl who was doing improv, and I was like, you know, I kind of just want to do something that's outside of the world that I was in. Um, And then I liked it, and I was like, well, maybe I'll save up for another class just to, like, take a class. I won't, like, be serious about it. I like school. I like structure. So I was like, okay, I'll just, like, sign up for another class. But then I met one of my best friends in that class, And he was like, you're really funny. And he was like, just very affirming. And I'd always been writing music, but not showing anyone. And I just got this really big affirmation. And I didn't necessarily like doing improv because even though I like structure, there's something like too structural about it, right? Like I just didn't fit in that world. And then I ended up living with my best friend and there was just a lot of affirmation for my ideas. And I think that's what turned me into writing. Like I left my relationship at the same time I was getting a lot of affirmation for my comedic ideas so it just kind of was like the perfect storm and growing an ego even if it was like the tiniest ego like I just started growing it and then was like I'm just gonna try this out and I never I never thought until like early 2015 that it could be something that people would actually pay to come watch or purchase and stuff like that. What do you look for in friendships and in your community based on that realization that you had around the importance of affirmation? Yeah, I mean, for one, I'm thinking about when I first moved to New York, I was hanging out with like all straight cis white dudes. And like now when I look at my community, it's all women and queer people. And not that I like to make generalizations based on identities that often, I guess, but I think that those communities are also people looking for affirmation so they give them out easier. So like when you're in a community of people who are not only like-minded but open-minded, I think that there is just 
innate support. I look at my women of color friends and historically have not been supported through their lives, but are like surrounded by people who also haven't been. So like you give that support. It's like we're building our own foundation versus like entering into like a group of white cis men who've always had the found. They were born with the foundation. And so we weren't. And when you enter into communities like that, it's so much easier to be supported. When you talk about that, I automatically think of the recent sketch song that you did about Diwali. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Diwali party was like so much fun. I mean, and this is a very new group of people that I'm becoming friends with. Like I was saying, like the past two years, um, there's like a group of South Asian women comedians and we all talk to each other. Holy shit. You know, I think this is very orally New York, and I'm really glad we're here and this is happening. (laughs) There's nothing more New York than being like, I'm in my oasis, but they're like throwing shit on the other side. I wonder if we could lift this table to the other side. Yeah, quite possibly. Do we want to... Should we try that? Yeah. Because everything's already set up. Yeah. All right. I'm going to keep recording while we do this. Right? I'm going to hold these. We return now to Elizabeth Street Garden, where Artie and I are trying to complete a stealth operation with a public table in front of a garden volunteer who is sitting on a park bench in direct view of our subtle relocation journey. She's not even looking. There's a woman who's like the caretaker of the garden today and she's just on her phone and we just walked past with our table of podcasting equipment that we're carrying down a gravel path to go somewhere quieter and she just didn't even notice that we were carrying this. Also, here's the rope. All right, let's do it here. <laughs> I can't believe she just didn't even look. Amazing. So now we've set up in another corner of the garden. Yeah. You can still hear the roadworks, but they aren't as loud. Yeah, they're not as loud. And Artie is sitting in this lovely corner surrounded by foliage. <laughs> I will take a photo of this later. I'm just like... <laughs> so we were talking about the Diwali party. Oh, yeah. So pretty recently, I guess like less than a year ago, probably sometime earlier this year, we like formed like a group chat of a bunch of South Asian women comedians and it's become like this other support system that I never imagined I would have when I was younger because I feel like when I was younger I wasn't really fitting in with the white kids but I also wasn't really fitting in with a lot of the Indian kids and I was always like I'm the only Indian person that's ever felt this way and it's like very wrong of me to think that that's not true at all But Maya and I, Maya Deshmuk and I have been friends for a while and we just had this idea to do this show together and it's just so much fun. So Maya and I are very, very different. Like I am like younger and kind of this big mess. I feel like I act like a tween and I like don't have like things necessarily together and I'm kind of this person who's more conceptual and like I can do like banter and all these things very easily and Maya does all these she's like very organized writes these characters is always off book you know she's always just very like present and organized whereas I'm like oh my god I'm just gonna start saying random things just floating out of my head right now and she's very like okay let's get back on track so it's cool to work with her because she's so different and like the stuff we like are so so different she's much more attuned to like pop culture and all of these things and I'm very like 
wow can you believe what's happening at the gallery like you know so we're very different but it just proves that like we still were able to get along really well and work really well and she's like one of my best friends and it's just cool to be friends with other Indian people who have been perceived as being whitewashed but we're like there's different types of being whitewashed you know like she has like a very different experience than me. My whitewashed is like I worked at American Apparel and went to punk shows, right? She went to Rutgers and had like a state college experience. You know, we're both quote unquote whitewashed, which isn't an actual thing. <laughs> yeah, she's the best. So doing the volley party is very funny because we wrote that song that you saw is us singing about the history of what the volley is, where we call several goddesses hoes and... <laughs> probably some stuff that we shouldn't but <laughs> it was still really funny it's a great summary <laughs> you know I felt educated after I watched it for sure yeah I hope we hope people did it <laughs> it is very silly if you were to give a piece of advice to young brown women southeast asian women about creating a community or finding people to make comedy with mm -hmm. what would you tell them I guess I would say that finding people is really hard. And for a while, I didn't think it would ever be possible because I was like, well, nobody's 100% doing the same thing or seeing eye to eye with me. But my best collaborators are people who don't see eye to eye with me, are people who challenge me to like work on different types of mediums. They're people who don't create the same things as me at all but they've helped me create some of like the best things so I think it's like yes look within your community for sure but also just because you're looking in your community doesn't mean that they're going to see life or creating things the same way as you. I think that act of looking is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Do you think of looking as a gift and a merit or like a task that adds to a kind of labor and exhaustion around being yourself I think it's both end like I think that there's moments where I'm like when I got when I get sent on on auditions like very rarely is it for a role that is someone of my exact type right it's not like a queer brown woman who's like quirky right it's it's usually like some different ethnicity but she's quirky or like the quirky person who's like a different gender right so it's never like my full identity being represented but the task of looking for that is really difficult and disheartening. But the task of looking for that also forces me to actually write my own stuff, which at first I was always like, oh, like, I wish I could just be in something, you know, like I never did like musical theater or anything as a kid because I was I was just like, I'm not going to get a role. Right. Like I'm just there's no way there's no space for me. But the older I get and the more I value my writing, the more I'm like, oh, actually, like I'm creating my own space and not only am I creating my own space I'm creating spaces for other people to like fill that space in with so it's a double-edged sword I mean I wish that I could just be like yeah I'm like a shoe-in for all these casting things but there's something nice about standing out because I know that if I'm ever casted in anything ever in the future I know that uh, it'll feel that much more rewarding so one of the ways that you reflect yourself or write about yourself is through poetry mm -hmm. and like comedic poetry, which mm -hmm. is really, really unique. <laughs> and a lot of that poetry communicates pretty universal experiences. But how did you go from writing comedy to then transitioning into poetry specifically? 
So what was happening around the time when I was writing these things years ago when I first started writing it was Rupi Carr came out with that book, Milk and Honey. And like, you know, I read it and I liked it when I read it. And then I started being like, I can write broken sentences and I get why people love it. I get it. Like I understand it. Right. And I understand all of that stuff. I have the book. I have read it at least twice. So I'm not here to knock her on anything she's doing because actually she's built like a business model that I'm kind of satirizing through a lot of the times. So I was like, I can write a broken sentence. I'm really well read. I'm at the point where what can I do in terms of writing? Because I was like home a lot. I was experiencing a lot of depression. It was like almost a full year since I broke up with my ex. And I was thinking about like, will I ever be with anyone ever again? There was one day that my best friend and I sent these emails to each other of the list of every single person we'd ever slept with back when it was a time that I could count how many people I've slept with. And then I was like, I wonder if I can remember every single person I've kissed. And then I wrote a full list of everyone I kissed. And I was like, I bet you I could write about each of these experiences in one sentence and then that Rupi Carr book came out and I was like I bet you I can make these sentences sound like poems and so the first version of Boys I've Kissed and Hated was literally I wrote a poem about every single person I had ever kissed then I sent the poem to a different woman and they did a drawing or a piece of artwork for it so it was like the first version is like very much a zine where it was like a poem and a drawing or like a poem and a piece of art that like someone just drew based off of like reading the poem for the first time so to me I was like this isn't serious writing and then people started buying the zine and were like oh my god like I have had this experience I know what this feeling is this is so funny this reminds me of my ex this reminds me of this person Um, I gave this to my friend and then I was like oh maybe my writing isn't as much of a diary as I think it is like maybe it's something beyond that and like how can I stretch this so then I started just like feeling more confident in my writing because I was always writing but I was like nobody's ever gonna see this so it came upon literally between me and my best friend who I still have that email exchange between us when we wrote a list of everyone we slept with (laughs) that's beautiful how do you differentiate between how you felt then in life generally, particularly about your work and making comedic stuff, and now. So I guess I'm wondering what your emotional landscape was around your work when you started making it, Mm -hmm. and then how that's matured now, and whether it has changed at all, or whether you go through the same process of thoughts and feelings as you're producing or making something. So my emotional landscape when I first started writing Boys of Kissed and Hated was like, you know, I was at a point where I was like, at an emotional loss and I had seen that like my ex and all of his friends have like moved on and nobody remembered me anymore and I had to go ahead and start from scratch in a way and even though I was having support around me it still felt really painful and so writing and remembering and recollecting these things were more supposed to be like you've experienced these things isn't that fun and funny like you've had fun like you've had fun and you're gonna keep having fun and you're gonna keep going out and exploring And sometimes I'll like write about an experience and just keep it in my diary and then revisit it months later and then write a poem about the funny stuff from it. So it's not always like the day after I slept with the dude, I came home that morning, took a shower and stared at the used condom and like wrote a poem. Like that's not how that's working. Right. But oftentimes 
it's it's just meant to catalog good moments even in the darkest of moments and that's why i turned to comedy because like the latest version of boys of kissed and hated talks a lot about grief and you know in the darkest of moments there's still very funny things when you look back on it right i have like in my latest book i wrote a list of things to do before your best friend's funeral and like that day I wasn't thinking like this is going to make a hilarious poem in my next book but like a year later when I'm looking back at what I did that day like it is kind of funny to be like what was going on I was like in a daze I was getting stoned I remember like going into the shower and coming out and realizing I didn't even use soap right like (laughs) all these things that you're just like for some reason I forgot to use soap in the shower but like definitely went to the coffee shop and got like a huge latte I'm wearing like crazy clothing like everything was falling off of me I like don't even know if I brush my teeth and it's funny when you look back on these things to be like you forgot about basic hygiene but you went and bought a latte like no matter what you are still a bougie bitch like it doesn't matter what's (laughs) happening in your life like you're like somehow still buying that six dollar latte even though you literally didn't use soap before the funeral so I think like that is the emotional landscape of everything is like Yes, I can tap into how I was feeling that day, but I also have to step out and kind of act like I'm not the person experiencing it to be like, that's crazy. Like, what are you? Come on. Like, I do like a short narrative about the day of my uterus surgery and body dysmorphia that you feel going through surgery. But one of the funniest things was that I was reading Eve Babbitt's and I wanted to bring my book in with me to the surgery room. Like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So like, if we can remember these funny moments, then like those dark times don't feel so dark. I was actually talking to a friend about this last night Mm -hmm. at a bar. Um, I was telling her about something that had happened to me and she was like, how are you adjusted after that? And I was like, honestly, I thought to myself, if I'm the best version of myself through this, it's going to make for a great story. Yeah. Which is probably sick, but also it worked. No, it's so (laughs) sick. It is so sick because I think of that way too. Like, I remember I recently went on this date after work. So it's like in this neighborhood, we went to a bar and it was like my first date in a while. uh, And it was like on a dating app and it was with like some guy that he seemed nice. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to go to a date with a really nice guy. And after like the drinks, we like are outside the bar and then he like leans in to kiss me and then starts freaking out because he finds out there's a roach crawling up his neck. Oh my God. And then he flicks the roach off his neck onto me and then like kicks the roach off of me. And I can't stop laughing because I'm like, man, I've really been in this comedic rut because I just finished the book. I finished editing the whole book. And I was like, man, I'm drained from writing that and editing that book for so long. And there's like other things I'm writing that I need to submit to stuff. So like I was writing, 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 writing. And I was like, I haven't written anything new for my stand up. This sucks. And like literally the day I sent my book to print, this happened that night. And I was like, damn, he didn't text me like ever again. He like goes to me because he was deeply embarrassed right like because he's deeply embarrassed whereas like for me if that happened with another person and they were like that's our meet cute like that's such a good story right yes but like people are too embarrassed yes yeah which is also the marker of somebody you don't want to go on another date with right of course i mean i wrote this for my book release party this short piece that was like this book doesn't begin and end with the book it's a continuation it's an anthology like half of it is not even written half of it's not even mine in a sense right like boys I've kissed and hated it doesn't even necessarily even just mean boys I use that term lightly right so like half the things are like 
if you approach things that are deeply embarrassing as like, well, this is a great story, then like embarrassment just fades away. And that's what I feel like comedy has let me do. Like embarrassment is not a real emotion. Like it isn't an emotion that you place on yourself. Nobody's thinking about that stuff as much as you are. And if you replace embarrassment for being like, this is going to be a great story, then like that's the only reason why I'm able to get up and do things. So I'm like, whatever. You mentioned in an interview you did with Forbes Mm -hmm. that you also require some distance from the experiences you've had before Mm -hmm. you write about them. And in the age of the personal essay, I have often noticed this division between kind of humorous pieces that feel like they are finished already when the person's sharing the story. And I guess what Roxanne Gay calls in Gay Magazine self-cannibalism. Yeah. At what point do you recognize or feel like something is ready I don't even know if it's this rigid like checking off my list and now I'm ready my most recent experience where I just noticed it felt like more of oh god I can't believe I'm going to say this a spiritual shift of sorts was last year my best friend died in September and I was still doing shows I was still going out there and I wasn't talking about grief at all and then on December 1st I dyed my hair pink And I had two shows that night and I just, for some reason, I just got up on stage and I was like, I don't know if you could tell by my hair color, but I'm grieving. It was just, (laughs) and then all of a sudden, all of these jokes just came out of me that I had been like toying with, but never performed and had no anticipation of performing them and just did these grief jokes. It like shook me. Like I don't even, I didn't have my notebook up there with me. It was just stuff that I had been writing my notebook, but didn't really feel solid. And then all of a sudden something like internally changed for me and That was probably like three months after he passed away. So it was like something just changed. And I keep saying this and I've been saying this for a little over a year now that like I just became unhinged. Like there is nothing to lose when you lose someone, you know. And then not only did you lose someone, but before that, like years before you had lost what you thought was your community and your partner. So like at that point, there's absolutely nothing to lose and so that just shifted it still takes a few months like this roach story i can tell up on stage like the next day right because that's like whatever but there are certain things that have happened to me this year that i'm like i'm not going to talk about this right now so no rigid thing just maybe like can't be experiencing it in the moment i can't joke about the person i'm sleeping with right now because i'm in it it sounds like being careful with your vulnerability actually navigating what vulnerability is and what it looks like and when you do it seems Mm -hmm. to be a really interesting challenge at the same time in every interview that I've read that involves you (laughs) just like every single one on your website (laughs) it's my job I get to be a creep full-time you are quite candid yeah and that comes across as vulnerable have you always been this candid I think that what comedy has taught me because comedy is a form of art that requires you to be conversational most of the times at least the kind of comedy I do like there's other stand-up comedians who do like more bits and character based things who are all really awesome as well but the basis of what I create is about starting a conversation or being in the conversation so once I started writing like that and realizing that's what's important to me then like that's how I just act but Previously, I've always been really abrasive. I've always been like a really huge goof, really like annoying and like making people laugh and like calling out people's like anti-feminist rhetoric and shit like that. But throughout all of that, even as a young person, I still had a lot of shame about like my body and things I've experienced and assault and all that stuff. But once I exited my last relationship, it was again, it was another moment where I was like, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. And 
I still battle with like dysmorphia and all these things and PTSD, but at the same time, I don't battle with the shame as much anymore. I don't feel as shameful of my experience. So as soon as I recognize that, I'm like, I'm like deeply flawed and deeply human, right? Like I'm a person who, yes, I get interviewed for talking about sexual assault, but also like I've had people come to my shows thinking I'm going to talk about sexual assault and I'm like talking about my diarrhea because I'm deeply human like not only am I a survivor but I also have diarrhea and like those are like a person can hold like multiple truths at the same time and I think that recognizing that it's important for me to be candid I don't think people who are like me were raised to be candid I am first generation Indian and I was very much taught to like go by the rules study hard head down don't like cause a ruckus or anything and I did very much quite the opposite which is why half the time I'm like, will I ever be able to hold a quote unquote real job? Because if you look me up on the internet, it's like, this girl's crazy. But at the same time, being my most candid self affords me the most opportunities and allows me to meet people who genuinely, genuinely end up caring about me. Could you talk to me about a piece of comedy that can be any form Mm -hmm. that you really admire and why? I think a form of comedy that I've been really into is the adult cartoon, like BoJack Horseman, Tuca and Birdie, even Bob's Burgers. That's something I really, really admire because those are these animated things. Half the time, they're not even using human species, right? And they're able to paint this world of real feelings and real things. And I know like not everyone likes BoJack Horseman because um, it's really dark. But even if you like watch Bob's Burgers, there's still like this through line of like real emotions and real things that are happening sewn into this like absurdity. And I'm like really interested in that. I'm really in love with that idea. I think it's also really nice to be like adults watch cartoons too and like adults need a break. And I think that is something that I've just been so into, especially the past like six months. It's just been so cool to like sit and like watch those shows and also start recognizing comedians' voices in those shows. It's also very cool. Um, but yeah, I love I love the cartoons. I feel like growing up, the only adult cartoon that I could think of that we weren't allowed to watch at home was The Simpsons. Oh, and Beavis and Butthead. Oh yeah, I used to love Beavis and Butthead. I would like sneak it in. That and South Park, but I was never into South Park. What did you like about Beavis and Butthead? I just, you know what? You know what I ended up learning when I was older? I was like, I dated a lot of men who were like Beavis and Butthead. Because <laughs> <laughs> my first crush was Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Whoa. Yeah, and Beavis and Butthead is like kind of the raunchier, dumber version yeah, of Shaggy. Yeah, you have a type, man. Yeah, I know. For a while, I did have a type. Very dumb white dudes. And I don't think I've like dated a very dumb white dude in a, probably like two or three years. So like pretty good track Congratulations. record. Congratulations. So Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To live in New York and not date a dumb white dude in a couple of years is like pretty cool. That's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Beavis and Butthead, they were just kind of like, whatever, I don't care. And I was like, that is my style of humor. Like even when I'm joking about like assault or anything like that, I still have that air about me. So I do appreciate that, even though that they only talked about dumb stuff. They were anti-Bush though. I mean, that's progressive. Exactly. <laughs> so I, Take just, what you can. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> my final question uh-huh. is what do you want to do next and what do you need to get that done? What do I want to do next? I guess there is this moment where I was like, I want to like actually, I self print my books, but I want to like, I want to have like, even if it's the tiniest publishing deal, just someone, because last time I did it through Kickstarter and that's really cool, but like, I want to, I don't want to ask my friends for money. I don't want to do that anymore. Like I 
think that my writing is worth being at the very least on a coffee table Urban Outfitters book. You know what I'm saying? It 100% is. It 100% is. I am actually genuinely shocked you don't have a publishing deal yet. Like, I met you at the beginning of this year. Yeah. And even then, I was genuinely shocked. Yeah, I I don't have those connections. And yeah, it's just... I think that some of the stuff I write is like not necessarily like appropriate for even like a 16 year old to pick up and read, which I understand. But there's that. And then I do this stuff with my friend who he made this puppet for me. So I've been writing these like short videos with the puppet that I'm hoping to record early next year. But I've been like writing short songs and uh, I have like a list of sex educators that we want to interview for each short episode. And then, like, me and the puppet will sing a song about masturbation. And so it's, like, it goes back to me being, like, I'm interested in cartoons. I'm interested in, like, invocating those childhood tropes of entertainment into, like, being a full-grown adult and still having that mushy part of our brain to be, like... Because your kid is still in your brain. I just watched that Mr. Rogers documentary, so I'm going to start, like, crying. But, like... You know, the child doesn't get, like, erased just because you're older. It's still there, and it's still wanting the same things. So I'm interested in how, like, puppetry and cartoons can, like, invoke those feelings. They're, like, super short, and they're going to be super doable. So I'm excited to just do the videos while I just keep shopping my book around. Yeah. Adi Golapudi, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And then, just like that, the construction work stopped. We said goodbye, and I walked back down the gravel path of the garden. That was an interview with comedian, comedic poet, performer and mutual aid extraordinaire Artie Golapudi. I mentioned mutual aid because this year Artie has dedicated a substantial portion of her time to developing several COVID-safe free book fairs and free libraries in New York City. You can find out how to support the initiative she started called Free Books for All, where all the good info goes in this episode's show notes. And here is our final reading of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna website. All hail our new eco-friendly witch Bernie alternative. Written by Pratima Mani, read by Laura Campbell. Angry mob, angry mob, please, please, angry mob, listen to me. It's me, your friendly village priest's wife. And I'm here to announce that the Lord came to me and told me that there is a big problem with our witch burnings. They're just not that great for the environment. We should be steaming our witches to death instead. These women who have been accused with little to no empirical evidence, they're life-size. It takes a lot of timber to emulate them, which means a lot of noxious witch-infused gases released into God's beautiful atmosphere. Some days, the smoke's so thick I can't even see the village as well, where we're drowning that other woman for adultery. Or the village square, where we're branding that other, other woman for streetwalking. Not to mention their public health consequences. Witchy fumes cause lung problems that are expensive to treat. We don't all have access to leech care, 
Oh, it's fine for the lords and ladies who enjoy the femicide fun from the comfort of their daisies, but the poor umpire side getting a face full of fumes. No one should die because they've tried to jeer someone else being put to death. That is not who we are as a society. Nay, to toxic witch burning. Yay, to hot potting those heretics to their doom. On a side note, all this smoke is scaring the wildlife away. When I'm not priest wifing, I'm an avid bird watcher, and I just have to say, not cool, everyone. The timber lobby? Please. We all know the timber lobby will say, deforestation is just the cost of gleefully incinerating demon wenches. This, bloodthirsty friends, is a tired talking point. We shouldn't have to choose between preserving our planet and communally murdering people's daughters, sisters, wives and mothers whenever the mood may take us. This isn't the 400s, this is the 600s, an era of progress. We can have both. The soothsayers have been trying to warn us since the dawn of time. Climate change is real. As real as when women, obviously not all women, just the bad spinster ones, insert ergot-infused broomsticks into their hoo-ha for, I feel sick just saying this, their own pleasure. In 20 years of marriage to my husband, I've never experienced personal pleasure as God intended. Now, I'm not saying which steaming will be cost-free. We'll have to build giant earthen steaming chambers first. But what progressive environmental policy didn't come with an infrastructure bill? Additionally, we won't actually be able to see these wenches burning, their flesh peeling from their child bones, fat bubbling in the flames, etc, etc, which takes some of the family fun out of it. But we have to make sacrifices. Some of you are understandably concerned about the efficacy of steaming. Will it be tedious and janky and not even kill those hussies good and proper so they survive and then wreck their damned revenge on us because they're all pissy that we tried to slow cook them alive? You know, typical harlot behaviour. I'm not going to lie. Steamy might take longer than the traditional wood fire, but patience is a virtue. Think of the trees we could save. I'm pretty sure trees are worth at least 1.5 women each. Bible check me on that. So there's really no question on the virtuous math of all of this. Now we've got that business out of the way, let's talk pros. We believe that we can use the witch steam to power a turbine that will heat the town hall where we sentence these Jezebels to damnation. Micah the blacksmith tells me the aforementioned witch steam power turbine could also be used to increase our harvest so we have more rotten produce to throw at these crone mamas on their parade of shame. That raging crowd is a zero waste closed loop system forward thinking and ethical also obviously when i say micah the blacksmith told me i mean micah the blacksmith's wife told me i don't talk directly to men 
I'm not a witch. As a bonus, Steamy Now witches may be more humane than traditional burnings. We'd basically be killing these ladies by intense sauna treatment. Doesn't that sound luxurious? Not that this is about those heathen side pieces of Satan. Of course not. Duh. This is about environmental stewardship. You know, so there's something left of the planet for our sons. I mean, maybe our daughters too, but half of them are probably future witches, so really this is their fault. The skeptics will try to convince you that all of this is new age nonsense that totally takes the wrong lessons from witch burnings. But is it? Or is it just good, kind, compassionate sense? Let's boldly take a step into a more sustainable future for all. Let's steam those witches. <laughs> As an aside, I'd like it to be known that our son is single and looking for love. Ladies, he is a catch. Laura Campbell is a Canberra-based stand-up comedian and disability advocate. She currently spends her time watching and critically analysing Netflix Christmas movies to disassociate from the year that shall later be named The Beginning Time. You can find her writing and upcoming shows on Facebook at Laura Campbell Comedy. Pratima Mani is a comedic writer and performer based in New York City. She's written for the likes of UCBT Mordnight, Boogie Manja, Magnet Theatre, The Pit and Reductress. Her work has been showcased at the Chicago Women's Funny Fest and her one-act play, Eye Contact, was featured at the Radium Girls Radioactive Festival. She currently reads with South Asian theatre collective Fresh Lime Soda. You know, the great thing about recording, editing and producing your own podcast is that now the show's coming to a close, I can say whatever I'd like. So before I head out, I have some acknowledgements. Firstly, and most importantly, all of the editing, production, mixing and music recording and every part of this show that involves me speaking in this authorial voice has been done on stolen land. That's right, this audio was created on the unceded territory of the Gadigal and Bidjigal clans of Eora in a country probably known to you as Australia. But actually, no treaties were signed in the founding of Australia. So this is now a history podcast and the nation of Australia is still in a legal occupation of Aboriginal lands. Checking out comedy by First Nations people is a fantastic first step to radically and rip-roaringly altering everything you might think you know about Australian and Aboriginal history and identity. And while The Antidote features First Nations North American talent, it doesn't include any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander voices or comedic writers, and that is negligence and an oversight entirely on my part. This country is packed with really fucking funny and acclaimed First Nations comedic talent like writer and performer Nayuka Gori, meme god and designer Kira Janali, playwright and performer Nakia Louie, and TikTok celebrity Emily Johnson, to name a few. And I've put the social media handles for each of these artists in the show notes of the episode so that if these names are new to you, you can check out their comedy. This always has been, and it always will be, Aboriginal land. 
Speaking of Australia, thank you to Arts ACT for funding both my development to get these rad podcasting skills and for funding the fellowship I completed with the Belladonna to create this show. A huge thank you to the Belladonna for having me for this fellowship and a particular shout out to outgoing founding editor Caitlin Kunkel, whose ongoing support has been a pillar of my confidence and self-worth in our year of 2020. A full and hearty thanks to outgoing managing editors Brianna Haney, Lillian Stone and Paddy Terhune. Your commitment, your feedback and your sweet, sweet promotional skills have meant this series is out there for new, aspiring and emerging comedy writers to find and take heart in. The Antidote was made with the help and willing time of 40 writers, performers and very, very smart guests. Thank you so much for coming on board and for your enthusiasm and your time. And finally, thanks to you. Thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for rating it. And if you haven't, it's not too late. And thank you for the lovely messages and comments you've dropped on social media and in my DMs over this year. Please say hi sometime. You can keep up with whatever I'm working on next by following me on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find my handles and the handles for the Belladonna Comedy at the end of the show notes for this episode. I know, a lot of show notes. Merry Christmas. Have fun in the holidays doing all the cool shit in the show notes. Do you know there are 11 sets of show notes? That's like you could do like 12 days of Christmas, except there are 11. And on the 12th day, you could listen to all of the episodes. Just ideas for you. May your 2021 be a wonder and a relief. May it be revolutionary and kind. Until next time.